You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Good morning. Hey, it's great to have you here. And if this is your first time here or you're here today, welcome. You're here on a perfect day because we are starting a new sermon series called I Want to Believe, But... So let's pray first. Lord God, this day, we are yours. This day is yours. Everything is yours. And we want you to fill this moment and fill this time so that you get your message out through me. Um, Even though, you know, whatever I am, Lord, is not really the issue. It's who you are. And we want to get to know you better today. And how amazing, how loving, how beyond all our imagination you are, Lord God. And so through this series, I just pray that you'd be with us. We thank you, Lord, this is not the only place that you are present by any means across this globe. And in this community, there are so many who are following you and serving you and trusting in you. So we thank you for so many churches, both as partners in Love, Inc., as well as, Lord, just churches around sharing your gospel today. Bless those pastors, those messengers, and the people, Lord. And may this whole area undergo... um, a renewal, a reformation, that our hearts and lives are transformed by the gospel and many, many, many people hear that message, receive that message, and are brought to you. All this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I want to believe but, okay? Um, Why this series? Why the series? I think there is more and more people today that want to believe, but there's some obstacle in their way. There's some barrier that gets in the way of believing, and we're going to be looking at that in this series. So let's share this Bible passage first, Isaiah 55, 6 through 9. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So, um, I want to believe, but a lot of people are struggling with that. Gallup polls uh, since 1944 have been asking the question of Americans whether they believe in God or not. And in 1944, 96% said they personally believed in God. And that remained consistent through about 1967. And then all of a sudden it started to decline from that point on. So that in 2016, we know the last series survey we have that 79% say they believe, 10% are not quite sure or not sure at all, and 11% now say they don't believe in God. And even for the 79% who believe, that is the vast majority of Americans, they struggle with this, how do I believe in God when? And we're going to be going through that series, this series specifically for that. Now, when someone might tell you, hey, I don't believe in God, it might shock you because that's not the majority of opinion yet. But it intrigues me many times if somebody comes to me and says, I don't really believe in God. And um, I want to know why. And sometimes I have on a couple occasions said, hey, tell me about the God you don't believe in because I probably don't believe in him either. 
Now, I know you might, but that's the reality I think that we're dealing with in this series is the fact that people make a projection of who God is supposed to be, and when he doesn't meet that criteria, they then turn on him and say, oh, I just can't believe in God, okay? And I understand why they can't, because that God doesn't exist in the first place. That's not, it's usually people are not rejecting the God of the scriptures, the God of the gospel, the God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're rejecting the God of their projections. And I don't believe in him either. So we're going to be going through this series. As Phil said next week, it's exciting, Lafon will be here. And I'm just excited to see what God is doing in Haiti and how God is working through Lafon and many others and through our mission and partnership with them. So please bring some guests to that. I think they're going to be excited to see something a little different. You're going to get somebody other than me preaching for a change. That's going to be good. And then in two weeks, we're going to, I'm just going to tell you where we're going, we're going to talk about what I call the goosebump God, okay? And that is where people say, hey, I, you know, want to believe in God, but I just don't feel him. I tried reading the Bible, but I didn't feel anything. I went to church and boy, I didn't feel it. How can you believe in a God that you don't feel, that you can't touch, that you can't hear? That's the goosebump God. That's in a couple weeks from now. In three weeks then, we're going to be talking about the heartless God. That is, I really want to believe in God, but he seems so. How can, the, how can he be so good and God when he allows so much human suffering in this world? How, you know, children are starving, um, random shootings in airports, etc. How can I believe in this God? That's the heartless God. That's in three weeks. And finally, in week four, it's what I call the killjoy God. I want to believe in God, but... Boy, I don't like all those rules, and then I'm just not going to have fun. I want to have fun in life. I mean, it's you go to church, it's boring. If you follow all those rules, I mean, I really, you know, what kind of God is this? Ugh. But today we're going to um, uh, talk about something a little different. Um, but let me tell you a story, kind of a backstory to get us in there, okay? Few of us are old enough in this room to remember giant television sets with little black and white screens in front of us. I think there's a picture of that, right? Do you remember that? And the rabbit ears and just trying to point them in the right way and the UHF channel, you do not know this, right? And at this point, even up until I can't remember when, we didn't get color television until I was in high school maybe? We waited because, I mean, the first color televisions, people would turn green, you know. Have, did you remember those? My uncle had one down on the farm in Missouri, and we'd get there, and people are orange or green, and you try to adjust it. It just didn't work, and it was all fuzzy, and yuz. well, you don't know what fun you miss, do you? <laughs> That was even a small box compared to some of them. And then what happened is for you to actually watch a TV show that you wanted, let's say MASH, the last episode. Guess what? You had to actually sit in front of the television at that specific time and tune to that TV show and watch the entire thing with all the commercials. It's the only way you got it. Some of you don't understand this because honestly, you've got, you're so used to that DVR, and boy, isn't that a miracle. And you're so used to streaming services that, how many of you binged watched a TV show this week? Anybody? Yeah. I'm not going to ask which one. 
not this week, but you have, right? Yes, it's amazing, right? Well, here's where I'm going with this, okay? Here's where I'm going with this. We are so used to on-demand for everything. Two-day shipping is too short now, or too long now. We want it in one day. Everything is instant. We believe that God should be on demand. Okay? God on demand. He should just be there. And so people will say, hey, I prayed about it. God didn't do what I wanted. Therefore, how can I believe in God? Because he really wasn't there for me when I asked him. That's the way it was supposed to be. Now, on demand God is great until on demand God doesn't do what you want on demand. And this might be your story. I think it's actually every one of our stories. Everybody has asked and wanted and prayed and tried and asked for on demand, asking God for something and he hasn't done it. It might be the fact that you were a teenager and you were praying to God as a teen to save your parents' marriage and it didn't happen. Where was God in all of that? You didn't get your prayer answered and you thought it was a great prayer. Or you might be one who gives and gives and gives and serves and serves and serves and yet you're dealing with financial struggles while nobody else does. Where is God in all of that? Or you might be the one who's been happily married and you've wanted children, you've prayed for children and everybody else seems to be able to get pregnant but you can't. Where's God in all of that? Or you might be someone who is struggling with loneliness or even desires that you do not like, that you never asked for, that you never wanted, that you never made a choice, that you can't remember saying, hey, I would love to have. No, and all of a sudden you're still struggling with this loneliness and these feelings and you've prayed and prayed and prayed and they're still there. What then? So often when God doesn't do what we think he should do and we know that he could do it, Well, we get frustrated, we give up, or we come up with some explanation of God isn't real, or he doesn't care, or he's not there. Where's that on-demand God? And the real answer is, it's a tough one to hear, but on-demand God does not exist. Okay? Now, a number of years ago, I remember this. I've not seen this musical. I think I'd love to see it. Um, Vanette Carroll, Alex Bradford, and Mickey Grant wrote a musical that sums up what we struggle with here, and it's called this, Your Arms Are Too Short to Box with God. It's actually on the Gospel of Matthew and how we all struggle as children of God with God, and we're trying to get it our way, and we just don't. Okay, and we're trying to figure out why doesn't it work the way we want. Now, in theological terms, um, there's a theological term for all of this. It's called theodicy. I don't know if you've ever heard that word, theodicy. And it basically is like, why not? Why Why are good things happening to them, not to me, and all that type of stuff? And this is such a huge topic that that we're going to come back to it three weeks from now when we talk about God, once again, the heartless God. Okay? because it is such a struggle for people to understand. But right now, I think the best thing that we can do to understand why on-demand God does not exist is to find ourselves in the great narrative, the great story of the scriptures and how that works, the whole story of the Bible from the beginning to the end and where it is. And if you're taking notes, it's very simple, it's very straightforward, that is this, God does not exist to serve us. We exist to glorify him, okay? 
God doesn't exist to serve what I want, do what I want, when I want it. That is not his highest calling is to answer my prayers when I want them answered. But we exist to glorify him in our lives. We have to recognize, if you read through the Bible, the main care, the Bible story has a lot of human beings in it, but we're not the center of the story. God is the center of the story, and it is God's plan from beginning to end and how God acted throughout the scriptures and what God is doing and what God is all about. He's the center of it all. And God is not some celestial Santa that just gives me presents whenever I want. He's not just a heavenly genie that I just rub just correctly and get three wishes. He's not the um, cosmic Coke machine that I you know, pray my prayer, I give my tithe, I push the button, I get my answer. It doesn't work that way. God is the creator. We are the created. Isaiah says it this way, God is the potter and we are the clay. And he chooses and he forms and we're gonna be looking at this. Now, C.S. Lewis put it this way, The problem of reconciling human suffering with existence of a God who loves is only insoluble so long as we attach a trivial meaning to the word love and look on things as if man were the center of them. Man is not the center. God does not exist for the sake of man. Man does not exist for his own sake. Thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. We were made not primarily that we may love God, though we were made for that too, but that God may love us, that we may become objects in which the divine love may rest well pleased. I love that quote, there's so much in it, we can't go into all of it, but the idea is God does not exist to serve us. We are here to glorify God, and the great thing about it is we, are, we glorify God best when we are loved by him. I think we're gonna be singing that song, aren't we? Later, boy, did you pick perfect songs, Davina, today? that fit in with this message. So if God on demand does not exist, then well, what is he here really for? What's it all about? I mean, come on. So we're gonna look at three qualities that we see throughout the scriptures that talk about who our God is. And by the way, the real secret behind this whole series is the real goal is for you to get to know who your God is more intimately, more deeply by finding out sometimes what he is not, okay? So he's not the on-demand God, but I think we've got something much better than that. And the first one is this, God is always loving. God is always loving. Now, any of you who are parents know how this works, right? We don't even have to go into great detail. You love your kids. You don't always like them. Sometimes you want to trade them in or at least turn them off, right? Uh, And sometimes you want to kind of knock them into next week, but you don't. But you always love them. You always love them, right? You always love them. You know how it goes too, okay? But you also know this about parents. So you always love your kids, but you don't always do what they want you to, okay? You're not there to serve them always. Hey, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? Oh, I'll give it. I'll give it. I'll give it. For example, you know, you send your children off to school. You tell them, pack your lunch. Here it is. It's in there. Don't forget your lunch. And of course, they forgot their lunch. 
So you truck off to the school, out of your day, you bring them a lunch, they're not hungry, and you say, don't forget your lunch. The third time they call you up on their cell phone and they say, hey, dad, can you bring your, me my lunch today? You say, oh, so sorry. No lunch for you today. Now, you're not doing that because you don't want to do it. You're doing that because there's something more important. You still love them, but you also are loving them enough to teach them. And they don't like it. Right? Well, the Bible talks about that kind of a relationship with us, his children, time and again, a father and his children. We need to understand when God doesn't do what we want, it's not because he doesn't love us. In fact, he loves us so much, he's not doing what we want. Okay? Romans 8 kind of says it well. It says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? We could update that because I don't know if you've got famine or nakedness or danger or sword going on in your life this week, but we could add in depression and unemployment and bankruptcy and divorce and disease and terrorism and political upheaval and basically say nothing will separate you from the love of God and Jesus Christ. And Paul then says, no, in all of these things, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors, right? Through my own strength, through my own power, through my own ability, no. Through him, and what does it say next? Do you see that on the text? Through him who loves us. God is always loving. And so he says, I am sure not death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God's heart is always loving. And he doesn't prove his love to us by giving us what we want, when we want it and how. He proved his love to us when he sent his son, Jesus Christ, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or as Romans, that says that in Romans, but in the book of Romans as well, 8 says it this way, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He's going to give us everything that we need, everything that's good, always. Okay? So, God is always loving, even when he doesn't give us what we want. Secondly, God's ways are always higher. Higher. Okay? His ways are always higher. Now, I know a lot of people think pastors go to seminary to get all the answers. And that we come out and you ask us a question, we've got the answer for it. I think we're all smart enough, I think, I don't know. Sometimes I probably give you an answer when I shouldn't. But we're smart enough to realize many situations in life are way above our pay grade. And giving any type of an answer to why or how or when is actually more damaging than good. Because God's ways are so much higher than mine, I don't understand why some things happen. And to try to tell you or explain to you why it happens actually will trivialize it or make it worse. For example, my brother and his wife, um, they have a young son who's 11 years old. His name is Silas. Paul, my brother, decided to name his son Silas. Paul and Silas in prison, right, in Philippians. Well, after about a year, they realized something was not quite right, and it turns out that Silas has severe nonverbal autism and apraxia and multifocal seizures, 
etc., etc. So he goes beyond just the typical, and he's at age 11 now, and he's in a Christian school. They've got an aide with him. They've done so much for him. He does have an ability to communicate through an iPad, praise God. And he himself asks the question, why am I like this? And my brother is smart enough to not say, well, I know why. He says, I don't know. And when he talks to me on the phone, I don't have a clue. And lately, the last few weeks, it's been a real struggle again, and they don't understand why at this point in time. They're going through so much fussiness with him and how they can't even send him to school, and all this stuff is going on. I don't know. We don't have a logical answer for why. But we do have what I call an eschatological answer. You've not, I know, what a word. We know the end goal. We know where God is heading all things. We know how this fits in the grand scheme of things and where God is doing. We know that God has something greater going on and that one day we will have that answer. We will have the answer whose name is Jesus. And one day when we see him, we'll all go like, oh, of course, now it makes sense. Now, that might not satisfy you right now, and it probably doesn't, but God is saying, trust me. And that's what I think he's saying in Isaiah 55, where he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. There will be a day. God has an end in mind. And we can see that once in a while, you've probably gone through things that you just hate. I mean, you hate it, hate it, hate it while you're going through it. A few years later, you look back and go like, oh, now I understand why, right? Or at least I see where it ended. I mean, it ended up pretty good. But during the middle of it, it's like, Ugh! well, we're in the middle right now of a lot of things. And when Jesus comes in glory again, we are going to finally have the ultimate celebration filled with joy and tears, and we're going to go like, oh, now I see, now I understand, now I am fully known by God, and I know who you are. And all along, we didn't understand his ways, but now we at least understand who he is. So God's ways are higher than ours, just like God is always loving. And thirdly, and I hope you can embrace this one too, God's presence is always enough. And if you talk to any mature Christians, uh, people who've been around the faith for a long time, they, they probably have come to a point in their faith life, and boy, can you learn a lot um, just being mentored by someone who has been through a lot more than, you know, and it's great. They probably come to a point where they say, you know, anything else can happen. Everything can fall apart. But if God is with me, that's enough. God's presence is enough for me. There is a character in the Bible, and he was quite a character. His name is King David. And boy, he says that. He understood. He had a heart for God. He also was a mess in a lot of ways. And you go, oh, well, he's King David. He's a king, of course, he can say God's presence is enough. Oh, if you read, though, what he wrote, I mean, he cries out in the Psalms time and again, where are you, God? Why do you allow my enemies to triumph over me? I feel abandoned. I'm, you know, da, 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 again and again. And it's not simply because he made a mess of his life at points in time. 
there weren't answers for this. And yet, he in Psalm 23, one of almost everybody's favorite, says this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In other words, I can go through anything. Death could be right around the corner. The fear and anxiety or the dryness or whatever is going on, but you are with me and that is enough. Why? We've kind of been coming up against that question. Why can I believe that God is loving? Why can I believe his ways are higher than mine? Why can I believe his presence is enough? What proof do I have of any of these things? What's the difference? And it comes down to what we celebrated last week and that week before. It comes down to what happened through Good Friday and Easter in Jesus Christ. You see the the story with God at the center of it from the beginning of Genesis through the end of Revelation is not simply a story about who God is in some generic abstract form, but is a story of God's compassion and love and yes, suffering and bearing with and woundedness and rejection and everything else that he does in order to get us. It is a story of how our God puts up with and carries on and forgives and loves and is filled with anxiety and pain and difficulty. And we see that the most in the life of Jesus Christ, where we have God's heart opened up before us. In um, John chapter 12, Jesus is in Jerusalem. And this is the week, the last week of his life before the resurrection. And he says this, Once he's there, he says, now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is a judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. I don't know if you realize this. Jesus could have. And in fact, he says this. I could call down a legion of angels right now for my father. He could have made his father into an on-demand God. Give me what I want. And yet, here in John chapter 12, as well as when he is crying out in the garden of Gethsemane, he says, not my will, but your will be done. What he wanted more than anything else was that God would be glorified in his life. His father was not there to serve him and do whatever he wanted. He was there to glorify his father. And what he went through, the insults, the injuries, the agony, the terror on the inside and out of his life to the point of death on that cross is the answer to who our God is. I love how C.S. Lewis, we're quoting him three times in this sermon. C.S. Lewis put it this way in a poem. He said, to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. You know, when someone says, I don't believe in God, I think what they really need to hear is about the God who had wounds for them understand there is a God who has suffered for them. They need Jesus to address them and the struggles he went through and everything that he did for them. 
They may not have a logical answer to why God didn't answer this prayer or that situation or this event, but they have a Savior who is and his presence is with them always, who, whose ways are higher than theirs and who is always loving. They need to know who this God is. And that if God can, through that horrific day called Good Friday, accomplish his greatest purposes, and we see that on that glorious resurrection of Easter, then we know that God is much better than a celestial Santa Claus or a heavenly Coke machine. God has created you for a purpose that is much greater than the purposes that you want him for. That's what's going on. Do you realize that? God has a greater purpose for you than you even want. He's still bringing that about. Even when he doesn't answer your prayers, maybe even especially because he doesn't answer it the way and he's not on demand for you. C.S. Lewis said this in Mere Christianity. Here's the third quote. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. And you thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Isn't that great? On-demand God does not exist. He's always loving, his ways are higher, and he's always present for you. And he's present for you right now, right now, right here. I don't know if you're broken. Maybe you're filled with doubt, anxiety, depression, indifference, loneliness, struggles. I don't know what's going on right now. I'd be willing to hear about it. I think almost anyone in this room would be here for you to pray with them and pray for you. But I know right now what we can do as a group, at least, is to pray together about who our God really is and that he's not the on-demand, he's so much better than that. So let's do that. It's time to pray. Father, we thank you didn't prove your love for us by just doing what we want, but you gave your son. You personally sent him here. And many in this room might be going through things right now that they just hate, they don't understand, that you don't make sense, that you haven't done enough or whatever, Lord. We're still going to pray for those situations. We're going to pray for healing. We're going to pray for reconciliation. We're going to pray for wholeness. We're going to pray for answers, Lord, and we're going to pray for you, but we're going to trust you even more, that you are loving, that your ways are higher than ours that you will do exceeding abundantly beyond all we can even ask or imagine, and that your presence is enough. So you're good, O oh Lord. You're always good. One thing you did promise that we can call on demand and ask for, and that is you promised to forgive. And we thank you for that, Lord. So there might be some who are facing a faith crisis here today. There might be others who are just feeling guilt-ridden over a situation or two or shame over anything. Lord, we know we can come to you. And so we pray together that uh, you would forgive us, that you would take our lives, Lord, 
that you'd fill us with your spirit, that we can live our lives in you. All this we pray, Lord, that we are yours completely. In Jesus' name, amen.